Like mm-hmm. I was sweating in that kitchen. And again, remember there's no oven and like, this mm-hmm. is a lot of effort. And also I mentioned that there were always people coming to our house yeah. for food. Well, for some reason, word got out that I was cooking. Oh, no. And there were, like, <laughs> six people in the kitchen, and they were all like, oh, he stood you up. Oh, well, well, at least we can all eat this food. And I was just <laughs> embarrassed. And the doorbell rang 30 minutes later, and he's just smiling right there. And I was like, you're late. He's like, I'm not late. I'm Spanish. Like, <laughs> That's what he said. And he's like, on top of that, I'm from the South of Spain, where we're really always, this is normal. <laughs> so again, I should have remembered these messages from, from these Morocco. lessons from Morocco, yeah. but I didn't. <laughs> and so, yeah, so he came and had dinner, and... Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Lori as the guest. Um, But before I tell you a bit about Lori, I have an announcement to make. So toward the end of last year, uh, I think it was in November, I was interviewed for the Thought Card podcast. The Thought Card focuses on personal finance and travel. And so the host of that podcast, Danielle Desir, interviewed me in, I think, November. And I know I mentioned it uh, sometime (laughs) at the end of last year, but didn't know when it was coming out. Well, uh, the episode is finally out. Uh, This Thursday that just passed, my interview came out. So if you're interested in learning about a little bit more about me or about study abroad in general, from my perspective, uh, then be sure to check that out. Um, That's episode 27 of the Thought Card featuring me (laughs) so be sure to check that out wherever you get your podcasts speaking of danielle desir host of the thought card um my interview with her as well as me being able to interview Lori for today's episode of young gifted and abroad both of those opportunities came about thanks to me joining a group on facebook called woc podcasters or women of color podcasters Um, it's meant to be a community where we exchange ideas and information about events or, you know, developments, you know, how to go about this whole podcasting thing, whatever. It's not just supposed to be about self-promotion. But every Friday is a thing in this group where it's called Free For All Fridays. And during that time, you can promote whatever you want once a week, um, every Friday. So by posting about the show on Free For All Friday, I got Danielle Desir's attention and she invited me to be on her podcast and I also fortunately got Lori Tharp's attention um, where she was telling me how she was excited about Young Gifted and Abroad. She was going to share it with um, the study abroad community or study abroad committee that she works on um, at Temple University and she also expressed interest in being a guest and so that's how we got here today. Um, So Lori Tharps is a professor at Temple University. She's also a a journalist. She's a professor of journalism as well as a writer and an author and a trained journalist. And um, she had the great opportunity to do a foreign exchange program in Morocco where she spent a summer in Morocco in high school. And then in college, um, she studied, had studied Spanish from like middle school or so. And then in college, she spent a whole year studying in um, Salamanca. 
So in Mar Morocco, she was in Casablanca, and then in Spain, she was in Salamanca. And um, so she spent time with me telling me about both of those experiences. The one in Spain was particularly transformative for her because she um, met her now husband there. But not only that, that was where she kind of rediscovered her love for writing, where she, that was the starting point for her writing about race and pop culture and, and uh, multicultural identities and the like, um, all the things that interest her and writing about those topics got a reboot while she was in Spain. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Lori has so many amazing stories and she's just a really sweet person, a uh, very sweet and very knowledgeable person. And um, as I mentioned, she has her own, since she's in the same podcast group as I am on Facebook, she has her podcast as well called My American Melting Pot. Um, so she talks about that website and that podcast as well. So lots of really, um, really interesting information in this one. I hope you enjoy it and, and gain something uh, helpful or inspiring from it and I've been talking long enough so <laughs> without further ado sit back relax and enjoy my interview with my friend Lori Tharps. Oh I had a question okay so I've been calling you Lori all this time I didn't know if you prefer to be called Professor Tharps or, or what I should it's fine. It's fine. Okay. All right. I didn't want to be disrespectful or anything. No, no, no. It's fine. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Um, why don't we start with you introducing yourself, if you don't mind? Sure. My name is Lori Tharps, and I am a, let's see, I wear many hats, so my day job, I'm a professor of journalism at um, Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, I'm also a writer and um, an author. Um, I also am now a host of my own podcast called My American Melting Pot. I'm a mother of three children um, that range in age from 17 to 7, mm. and um, let me see, yeah, that's me. I've my I write a lot about um, race and pop culture. Uh, my books, um, I read a book, I wrote a book about um, colorism in diverse families called Seeing Family Different Colors. The first book I wrote is called Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. That book I actually co-wrote with my friend Ayana Bird. Mm. And um, that's probably my most well-known and successful book. We actually made an updated version of the book it originally came out in 2001 and we updated in 2014 because there is always something new going on in the right. world of black hair <laughs> right <laughs> um, so yeah so constantly talking about you know i kind of picked two topics that are always you know in the news um black hair and colorism so mm -hmm. those are kind of my areas of kind of research interest um but, um, like, I also wrote a memoir about my experiences traveling in Spain and what it was like to be black in Spain. Um, and I wrote a novel called Substitute Me. So, I mean, at my core, I love storytelling. And yeah. I think that's probably the title that um, explains, that's the umbrella that, like, everything I love to do falls under is storyteller. Right. Wow. That's so fascinating. Wow. Oh, my gosh. You really do have a lot of hats. Like you said. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Had you, did you know, like, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer or work in, you know, writing and journalism and the like? 
So um, pretty much, I don't want to say always. And if you ask my mother, she would be like, Lori never, she was always changing her mind. But <laughs> it's interesting because um, when I was, um, when I was like eight or nine years old, my mom came home with an antique Remington typewriter that she had found at a rummage sale and she gave it to me. And I don't recall before that ever saying I'm going to be a writer. But when she gave me that, and I still asked her, like, why did you give it to me and not to my sister, for example, who was three Mm -hmm. years older than me? And she doesn't even, like, have a real reason either. Maybe because she saw that I was creative or, but I don't even know. But regardless, once I got that typewriter, I fell in love with the written word. I love the idea of writing. Like, I love the typewriter. I was writing stories all the time. And, like, from then on, and I was always a very voracious reader. So Mm -hmm. I guess from then on, I knew I was going to be a writer. I always thought I would be a novelist. And I still would like to see myself as a novelist. I've written one novel, but I've written four nonfiction books. And since I do journalism and blogging and things like that, my work is pretty much in the nonfiction realm. But Mm -hmm. I still, you know, my dream is to like, you know, live in another country, write fiction and, you know, have this fabulous life. So (laughs) that might be part two of my, you know, my career. But um, I've always loved writing and reading. Like, Honestly, I'm probably the most boring person in the world because if you're like, what do you do in your spare time? I'm like, read <laughs> and write. <laughs> what do you do professionally? Read and write. So. <laughs> I don't find that boring at all. I totally, I'm on the same page with you. Uh, I have very similar interests. So that, that sounds anything but boring to me. <laughs> um, Kindred spirits right here. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, um, okay, I just have one more, like, just... General, general question about you. Um, so you said you're a professor of, of journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of different routes for people who like writing and reading to take. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, where did the teaching aspect come in for you? Like, what appealed to you about becoming a professor? Well, so it's uh, it's a kind of a convoluted story, but I'll make it sound like it makes sense. But um Ironically, I um, when I went to college, I actually majored in education and had plans to be a teacher because I I really love children, and I had a, a like a summer job working with underprivileged children in my home city of Milwaukee, and really felt like called to you know work with young people. And I, I was the, the the kids at the camp were like um, four, five, six years old, mm-hmm. but I was also supervising the team counselors as well and it just um i i come from a relatively privileged i mean however you define privilege but like i had a lot of advantages and i felt like particularly as a black woman like it was my job to kind of give back to do for my community in some Mm -hmm. way so um you know i thought teaching like i was going to be a teacher and eventually work my way up into administration and i really told everybody i was going to be the secretary of education you know that Mm -hmm. was going to be my final place and then, um, which coincidentally, this podcast is about traveling. It wasn't <laughs> until I went to Spain for my junior year of college that I like re fell in love with writing and thought realized that I could um, make a career out of something I loved, which was writing. But to me, the idea of a career as a writer, the only career as a writer that I could think of was as journalist. Like that's a writer who gets yeah. it was a job. So I went into journalism having, you know, I worked on my high school newspaper. I had written for the college paper here and there. Um, so it wasn't like a completely foreign idea to me to be a journalist. But I was thinking about it in a practical sense that um, that 
I could um, work as a writer Mm -hmm. by being a journalist. So when I um, graduated from college, I didn't realize that that's what I wanted to do until I was a senior, which Mm -hmm. was too late to, we didn't even have a journalism major at my school. I went to a liberal arts college, but um, I started taking up, doing as many internships and working for the school paper. And I eventually went to graduate school and got a master's degree in journalism. And I was living in New York City at the time stayed in New York for like 15 years and worked at different magazines. Um, When I left New York City, though, I knew that I couldn't sustain myself as a magazine worker because the industry is all in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I figured that teaching would be my kind of fallback. Um, I would continue to freelance write and freelance edit as a journalist, but I wanted to have some kind of of steady paycheck that um, would kind of take the place of some of my freelance work in New York City. Yeah. So I kind of fell into teaching, but I'd always loved teaching. I'd always seen myself as an educator in some way, shape, or form. Um, so when I moved to Philadelphia, um, right before I left New York, I knew that, you know, again, leaving New York City, I would have to kind of have another source of income. So I found a, like an adjunct teaching job in New York. So by the time I moved to Philadelphia, I had some teaching experience and one thing led to another, you know, and I ended up teaching as an adjunct and then an adjunct position turned into a permanent position. So now I'm at Temple kind of for the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm lucky enough to be tenured there. So yeah. um, I have that um, opportunity and and um, I'm very grateful for it because as a writer who likes to explore different options, you know, like I said, I was writing a novel when I was when I started working there, I have since written other things and now exploring podcasting as a form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great to be at a university um, because all of that kind of falls under the rubric of what it is I'm teaching. So yeah. it's a great place to be. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. So you went from Wisconsin to New York to Philly, and yeah. now you're in Philly yeah. teaching and engaging in all and storytelling in all these different ways. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You made yeah. that really sound very basic. Yes. That's no. Great. No. No. I was. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like in a good way. Like you just succinctly put it together. <laughs> um. Yeah. I was just trying to sum it up. But yeah, that's. I think that's so cool, and I'm. I'm really glad that things have been able to work out for you in that way. You know. Thank you. Um. Okay. So talking about like travel and studying studying abroad. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, I think you, in one of the messages you wrote, you said you went to Morocco in high school, right? Yes. Was that the first time you had gone out of the country? Yes. Okay. How did that come about that you went to? Because, like, high school trips, like, I hear about Europe a lot for, you know, um, especially if it's, like, a high school class going somewhere. But Morocco is not something I hear very often that people that age are going to so how did that happen that you ended up going to Morocco during that time so um I don't know if you've ever heard of the um, organization AFS American Field Service um Mm. this is a program that um specializes in sending high school children abroad for either a summer or a year Mm -hmm. and um my and I can't remember how my mother got involved in the organization I think a friend of hers you know convinced her to be one of the, um, you know, it's one of the parent volunteers who helps, you know, coordinate the foreign students who would come to our high school and also help with the application process for any high school student who wanted to go abroad. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So my mother became part of this organization, I think in the beginning, just like as a volunteer. And my older sister, who's three years older than me, she went on the program for um, the summer between her junior and senior year of high school. And she went to France. She was studying French in high school and she went to France and had this really like wild experience. Like I think she expected to go and, you know, be in Paris and have a very sophisticated life experience. And she was placed with a family um, who lived on a farm Mm. and she was doing like farm work every day. (laughs) It was crazy. And, but it was really cool because the family had like six kids and they were all adopted from different ethnic, um, different um, ethnic groups. So she had this really bizarre, like exciting, not what she expected experience. Um, So when it was my turn, and again, pretty much I lived in my sister's shadow. So if Mm. she did something, I did something, but I was always trying to distinguish myself. So I, again, even with studying language, like she studied French. So I was like, well, I'm going to study Spanish then because I want to be different, although Mm -hmm. I want to do a foreign language. And so um, when it came time for me, if my mom, you know, do you want to do AFS? Do you want to study, you know, go abroad for the summer? I was like, of course, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to like one up my sister. Like she went to Europe, which is so safe. I'm going to Africa. I was like, (laughs) where can I go in Africa? Like Mm -hmm. that's just so bold and daring. Um, and I had enough, like, like I had enough maturity to know, even as a junior in high school who was studying Spanish and who loved Spanish and like always knew I would go to Spain. I kind of knew that like I would go to Spain in college. Like that just seemed like a a given that one could study abroad in college and, Mm. and that that would be the time. So here was a summer program to really just do something different And mind you, I'd never left the country. Like, my traveling was in the back of my parents' Volkswagen, wherever we could drive from Wisconsin. (laughs) So um, it wasn't like I had a lot of foreign experience, but I just was like, I have to one-up my sister, so I'm going to to Africa. Um, And at the time, the only countries in Africa that were available were Morocco and Egypt, I Mm. believe. And... To me, Egypt seemed like some place that everybody could get to. And I was like, Morocco just seems like really different. Hmm. And um, also, I did some research. But remember, this was way before the Internet. I don't know what I looked at. But some places <laughs> said that they speak Spanish in Morocco, which is true. And like the tippy, tippy north that almost connects with Spain. Right, right. Um, but I was like, yeah, and I can even practice my Spanish there. Like, I'm ticking up all the boxes. So I was woefully underprepared, but it was the most amazing experience of my life. So you went for a summer in Morocco. Yeah. Uh, between Is that between junior and senior year, you said? Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, I'm not really familiar with how this program is structured. Was it a group of y'all who went? So the way AFS, AFS has a really uh, um, interesting backstory. It was literally formed from um, the, um, the idea came from the World War II when children were like um, sent away from like war zones, like in London and in Paris, and they were sent to families mm-hmm. in like the countryside. Um, and, it would, and, and the like result would be that, you know, children from Germany would be sent to France or children from France would be sent. So it's like this really wonderful way to kind of, Um, create uh, like to learn about these people who we were killing Mm. um, by taking care of their families right by taking care of their children and so the idea with behind AFS is not even though um, if you go during the academic year you could be in school 
the idea was really to foster cultural understanding simply by like the homestay, the family homestay was the point of the program. Mm -hmm. So um, it was like you would be, um, there was an orientation. Um, We did, you know, gather, there was an orientation in New York and like every kid who was going anywhere like east or anywhere west, you know, would they'd be grouped together. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, and then you were usually given an orientation in country, but then you were given to your family and that was, that was it. You would become part of the family and you were to, I mean, it wasn't like forced upon you, but you were to think of them as like your host mother and your host siblings. Um, and, and they were not obligated to like entertain you. The whole point was that you were to kind of immerse yourself in family life yeah. and whatever the family was doing, you were just one more sister or brother. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was it that that was the whole point. And like I said, because my mother had been a volunteer we had hosted our own, we had never had a student for the whole year, but we were constantly hosting um, students for the weekend. Like there were a lot of, we, I lived in Wisconsin and a lot of these kids were placed in like these small towns around Wisconsin and they would have a big Milwaukee City weekend. That was the big thing. Hmm. And so we, we had hosted many students over the years um, as well. And it was just that, you know, I was used to this idea that I was going to get a family and we would bond. Um, and it would just be that really wonderful experience. And so, um, yeah, so that's how AFS works is that it's really about the homestay. It's really about the family, um, and be just, um, integrating yourself into that family. Mm -hmm. And so like before you leave, you know, the family, before you even, you know, leave your country, the family sends you like, you get a dossier, you get pictures and, you know, they send you a letter well, you know, kind of welcoming you and, you learn all your siblings and everything yeah so um and you still have the i don't know if they still do this but they like you would get a yellow tag to put on your suitcase which was like the same tag the war or not orphans but the war children they would have these tags on their suitcases to identify them so Mm -hmm. that they would be picked up properly so you would have your yellow afs tag on your suitcase and um Again, we had an orientation. I don't know if all of countries had an orientation, but because Morocco was such a, you know, different, it, I mean, it was so different from the United States, mm-hmm. we had like a three or four day orientation and we were in Casablanca, um, but we did, you know, the whole, like they had to teach us about, you know, eating with your hands and um, they tried to teach us, you know, some rudimentary Arabic and they tried to teach us, you know, things like the difference in time where time is not, you um, like the concept of time being on time is very different. You know, mm. it's, if someone says, let's meet at noon, um, they could be there at one. And that's not being late. That's not being rude. That's just a different concept of time. In mm. fact, the first day, like the orientation, my family, my host family got me at orientation on time and no one was there. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's, did I get it wrong? What's wrong? And it was like, <laughs> no, I was just moseying along like much later. So, um, yeah, so that was the that's the the idea of the program. Okay, and um, it's good that you mentioned uh, Casablanca because I was gonna ask it another question. It, Casablanca, I know, is like one of the more well known cities in Morocco. Is that considered like uh, like an urban area? 
Yeah, it's very okay. cosmopolitan. In okay. fact, when we first got there, I remember seeing something like, oh my gosh, this looks like California. Like, that's what it looked like. It was palm mm-hmm. trees, tall white buildings and um, skyscrapers and just like a big city. And the I remember the um, director of the program was like, what were you expecting? Camels around the street? And I was like, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, I was ignorant, I admit it. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, Casablanca was a very, was and is a very modern city. And um, the culture shock was not experienced. I did not experience culture shock in the orientation because for those first four days, I was actually assigned to a temporary family um, who lived in the city. It was a young couple um, and, um, you know, they lived in an apartment and it was pretty, I mean, it was culture shock just being away from home and all that. But Mm -hmm. The, the way that life proceeded wasn't that that different okay. but when I got my real family um, there was only 10 of us in the group who went to Morocco mm-hmm. like for example the kids who went to Paris and the ones who went to Belgium or to France and to Belgium there were like a hundred kids who went oh, to European countries <laughs> so those of us who went to Morocco we were a small group of 10 mm-hmm. and um, of the 10 eight of them eight of the kids were placed in kind of the same neighborhood, which was a very modern neighborhood of like single family houses. Like you would have thought you were in some suburb of LA, like Hmm. single family stucco homes, like just with green lawns and everything. And myself and one, and my friend, she's like my very best friend to this day. Hmm. Um, We were placed with families who live like, and I'm saying this like respectfully, but they lived on the wrong side of the tracks. They lived on the other side. They say that you literally had to cross the ra- the railroad tracks and in much more less, um, what's the word, less affluent mm. um, area. And okay. Morocco is a country where, you know, you have like a upper class and a lower class. There's not a very strong middle class. Mm. So most people who could afford to host an American student had to be of means, Um so most of the kids, again, were in a welder, rather wealthy neighborhood. But my one friend and I, my friend, she was, her family backed out at the last minute. So she was mm. actually kind of homeless for a few days. And then they found a family to take her. And my family was not poor, but we lived in a very poor neighborhood. My family was quite wealthy. Mm. But the neighborhood we lived in was, um, in fact, when we got to our house, we stopped at the gas station and I was like, they were like, okay, we're home. And I was like, what do you mean? This is the gas station. And they're like, no, this is our home. Our yeah. home, they lived in an apartment building, but like the front of the building was a gas station. Okay. And um, it just looked like an apartment building, but they actually lived like in the apartment building. Mm-hmm. It was a very, it was, I mean, it was just different. Mm-hmm. Um, but the neighborhood was, rather impoverished like this was not a neighborhood that you know like if I looked out the window of my bedroom window you know there were like there was a lot of like I could see a shanty town like right outside my window Mm -hmm. so this wasn't like a neighborhood where I would walk around or you know be able to um connect with some of my um American friends who were also you know in Morocco um so um that's when the culture shock hit big time (laughs) big time yeah yeah okay well it's good to know because i when you were talking about the origins of of afs and your sister's experience i was wondering oh do they tend to place people in rural areas which is why i asked if casablanca was urban or not so Mm -hmm. um okay that clears things up for me 
Um, <laughs> and you said you were placed in a temporary family when you arrived. Why? Why was that? That just because the it was just the way that the orientation worked. They wanted people. They wanted you to live close to the the orientation was held in the American Center, which was in the center of town and okay. center of the city. And they didn't want the they wanted you to be able to get to and from the orientation gotcha. quickly, not to have to because again some of these houses were not very close and they just didn't want to have to deal with that kind of. And they I guess they wanted the orientation to be they wanted us to stay in our group somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what it was. And it was only like a couple of days. Um, so, yeah, so it's just the temporary families. Okay, gotcha. For that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned how you, the area you lived in wasn't uh, as affluent as some of the other students who were there at the same time. Did you, um, I mean, you were with a family. I'm sure they were taking good care of you. Did you feel <laughs> unsafe at all? Or did li- that living situation uh, impact how you felt about being in Morocco at all? I did not feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you're like so far away from home, like you, safety didn't really register with me. Like yeah. I didn't fear for my life. But um, again, this was my first time abroad. Um, this was my first time in another country. Mm-hmm. I was completely out of my element and I cried probably every day for the first like week and a half mm-hmm. because I was asking myself like, why did I do I could be in Spain right now like, <laughs> like why did I why was I so eager to be so bold and different mm-hmm. um and the other so I had eight brothers and sisters mm. 11 I had eight sisters and three brothers and the nobody only one sister spoke English and everybody else spoke Arabic so even though they tried to teach us some French like because obviously Morocco is a French and Arabic speaking country mm-hmm. but my host mother um, she had um, well, my the, my brothers and sisters ranged in age from thirty three to six, oh, wow. and all from the same mother. So she had left school very early, so she did not speak French. Mm-hmm. So in the house, everybody spoke Arabic. So that put me at another like I couldn't communicate with anyone except for one sister, and mm-hmm. she stayed with me like almost all the time. But there was obviously times when she had to do stuff that yeah. I couldn't literally stick to her side. Um, and again, the culture is very different. So there was just so much that I didn't understand. And my family was nice. They were good to me. But let me it, it totally to my own. This is my own fault is that I was so overwhelmed. And, you know, they had told us, you know, don't drink the water and be careful of this and be careful of that. And I was so um, worried and scared and nervous that, you know, and like almost every night we had lamb for dinner. I hate lamb. Like, I just (laughs) did not like lamb. And every night there was lamb for dinner. And they told us not to drink the water. And, like, you know, the family would sit down for a meal. And, um, you know, you only eat with one hand, with your right hand. And um, there was, like, one glass of water put on the table for everybody to drink from. Mm. And it was tap water. And I was, like, not eating, not drinking, and basically probably appearing as a surly American, like, spoiled person and so I don't think I was making myself very appreciated so I was miserable and um it took me about two weeks like living like that like Mm -hmm. I think I probably was skin and bones by then because I really was barely eating anything um it's probably dehydrated because I wasn't drinking (laughs) anything and and was just like following after my sister just kind of trying to understand what was going on and there was like a thing where it was like don't ask so many questions just 
you'll figure like I would always be like, what's happening? Where are we going? What should I do? Da 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 da. And like the response was always, relax, calm mm-hmm. down. Like everything will be revealed. Mm-hmm. And as a, I'm that's not that's not my personality. It never has been. I've always been like, <laughs> what's happening? Let me lead the way. And it was very hard for me to just not understand and just trust what was happening. Yeah. So after like two weeks, I thought I was going to go stir crazy because I couldn't go outside. Like, my family wouldn't even let me go, like, wandering around the neighborhood because mm-hmm. they said it wasn't safe, particularly because I didn't speak the language. So, yeah. like, they're like, what would you be doing? And, again, it wasn't a very, like, um, I don't want to say it was an unsafe neighborhood, but it wasn't a neighborhood where an obvious foreigner should be walking around. Mm. So, finally, one day, um, one of my friend who also had lived with a the one whose family kind of like she lost a family and had to find a mm-hmm. new family she somehow got in contact with us she called me called the family and said like could we like meet in the t- in the city yeah. which would require me taking a bus from my house into the center of the city and I had to beg but at that point I was a hundred percent desperate mm-hmm. um and I eventually got the okay, but they made me wear jalaba, you know, so that I would blend in and they wouldn't let me wear, you know, like my European, but European, my Western clothes. Mm-hmm. Right. So they got a jalaba for me and made me wear that and said, you know, like I had ridden the bus with my sister, but riding the bus in Morocco is, is a different experience. <laughs> like it's not like you just get on and get on your seat. Like mm-hmm. you have to like push your way and like there could be live animals on the bus and I don't know if it's still like that I haven't been back to Morocco since the 90s but mm-hmm. it is like super crowded and you know it's it's crazy so but again I was desperate and I was like yeah. I can do it I'll be fine <laughs> and so um I did and they taught me like the three words to say in Arabic to make sure I got off at the right spot um so I, I managed to do it, and the first thing I did when I got off the bus was buy a Coke and a donut. I was like, oh, my God, white flour, sugar, soda, yum. I was like, oh, oh, my gosh, oh, heaven. And so when my friend saw me, she was like, you look terrible. What is going on? I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sad and lonely, and it's terrible, and And I looked at her, and she looked the opposite. She was, even though she was in this crazy situation because the family they found her, the host mother was only, like, two years older than her, Mm -hmm. had already a child, had just had a child, and, like, it was a very, like, her family was not wealthy either. Mm -hmm. And whereas the whole point of the homestay is there's supposed to be a, a kid your age in the family so that you can have that relationship with. So everybody had a family where there was, like, a teenager more or less our age Mm -hmm. except for my friend there was a baby so whereas most of the kids would have someone to entertain them or to go out with or do whatever my friend was like babysitting right Mm -hmm. or talking to this new mom but she was like still she looked so happy and she was telling me just about all the adventures she was having and I was asking her like but are you eating are you drinking the water and she was like yes you know like you just have to like she you're only gonna do this once right and she Mm -hmm. just told me like I needed to just throw myself into everything and um so I did I went back home that day and literally just turned my attitude around tried to stop resisting and Mm. try to control things I started 
eating lamb, drinking the water, trying to make a better effort at like ingratiating myself into the family. And it worked. You know, I, I ended up spending a lot of time with my six-year-old sister <laughs> because she and I could like kind of communicate, you know, and she like watched the equivalent of like Sesame Street and I could like pick it up and mm-hmm. she taught me some words and like she thought I was hilarious because <laughs> I was so dumb, you know, like she just thought it was so funny. And so I just hung out with her a lot. And, you know, and then I started becoming the after dinner entertainment. They would be like, my family would be like, let's teach Lori some of the hardest words to say in Arabic, you know. And, um, you know, and I had like Bobby Brown's My Prerogative, like like that his album had just come out mm-hmm. and I had it on like I had it on my Walkman to show you how old I am. Um, so like we would dance and they would teach me dance moves and I would teach them dance. I can't even dance that well. But like we just started like really bonding because mm-hmm. I started eating and stopped acting like I was too good to eat their food. Yeah. You know, food is so important. And I think my stanky attitude at the dinner table every night was probably just making them think I was a horrible human being. Mm-hmm. So like from that point on, um, my, my experience went from one of like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to survive this whole summer to like I won't lie it was still very challenging in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. I mean there was just so many things that were different and again not being able to communicate because I didn't become fluent in Arabic I I got pretty good at you know really basic like I actually was working with my host sister we had a the gas station had a little Mm -hmm. like kiosk in front where people would come to buy cigarettes and gum and you know basic stuff like that Mm -hmm. and I would work with her we would work and um Sometimes because she was, they were very Muslim family, so she had to pray five times a day. So when she had to go pray, she'd be like, okay, you watch the store. Oh, <laughs> I'd be wow. like, okay. <laughs> Hopefully nobody comes, but, you know, I'll use my five words. She actually gave me a dictionary, mm-hmm. an Arabic-English dictionary on my first day and said, memorize this. And I was like, I, I didn't think she was serious, <laughs> but she would ask me, like, why haven't you memorized this yet? Like, li- she was mad at me because mm-hmm. I memorized the dictionary yet I mean and it wasn't like a huge one but still yeah, yeah. she was like what are you waiting for uh, you dumb Americans you only learn one language <laughs> like you don't know but one language she's like I speak four languages and I'd be like okay so um, so there were so many instances of places and times like you know taking me to the public baths and traveling to visit family members who lived in like small villages where you know there was like no toilet, just like a hole or, mm-hmm. you know, just things that are, again, for a 17-year-old who'd never traveled outside the U.S., it was it was very challenging. But by the end of my summer, I had um, really felt like this was the most amazing thing I'd ever done because mm-hmm. it really gave me um, the understanding that America was just one version of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I could eat with my hands and not silverware. I could, you know, go to the bathroom standing up. You know, I could, um, you know, men could hold hands and kiss each other on the cheek and it wasn't considered, you know, effeminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just so m- Oh, and the biggest thing that was like the biggest takeaway is that you know, I wasn't seen as a black person. I was seen as an American. Like, my mm. nationality trumped my race, which, again, as someone who grew up in, a, in very white spaces with a yeah. lot of, like, microaggressions around race, um, it was fascinating to me because there was a blonde girl there. Like, there was plenty of... In our group of 10, we were three black, three black teenagers and the rest were white. Mm-hmm. But 
we were all equally attractive and desirable because what people cared about was in terms of um, attractiveness was our blue passports, you know, mm. because people just wanted that, like, you know, <laughs> we, we all got marriage proposals. Um, we all were told, you know, American, yeah, you know, you're so beautiful. Oh my and goodness. coming from a place where I was always the black girl who never had any kind of male attention, mm. I was like, what, me? <laughs> what? Um, and, and I realized it was it, it was actually kind of a letdown coming back to the States because people weren't telling me how beautiful and desirable I was all the yeah. time, even though I knew it was about, you know, being an American. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just opened my eyes to the world, like yeah. that the world was not Wisconsin. The world was not the United States. Mm-hmm. And that I could be a complete, not like I wanted to be a different person, but that at 17, you don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. So you think you you think you're this person who everybody has been you know saying you are but you go to this other country and you speak a different language and you do things differently and people treat you differently you there's just so many ways to see yourself suddenly that you would never have that option if you stayed in one country yeah for sure so that really that trip even though it was One of the most, I mean, the stories I have are insane. Like, the (laughs) stories I have are insane. But, and that's why my friend Lucy, the one who I was talking about, Mm -hmm. we're still, like, very good friends today because we went through so much. We ended up traveling. Like, my family took her on a lot of trips because they knew she was with a family that didn't have another, you know, kid in the Mm -hmm. family. So, um, they were kind enough to do that. So, um, a lot of the things I experienced, I have a witness. Yeah. (laughs) can talk about those things together um but it was that trip that made me de- like want to travel like to keep getting out of the united mm-hmm. states I- i'm glad that it was able to to turn around um the way it did even though you kind of got off to a, a difficult start you know adjusting to everything um mm-hmm. and so you basically uh did just did whatever the family was doing right i was wondering how you spent all that time during the summer like um, but it sounds like whatever the family was doing was what you were doing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, like, downtime. I mean, and that was another thing that I learned because, you know, especially as Americans, and the same thing in Spain as well, there's a lot of, like, just relax, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to be doing something mm-hmm. all the time. Gotcha. And so much of the time, it was like, what are we doing now? <laughs> relax. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, somebody would come over. And it's like, well, don't we have to have dinner? Shouldn't someone be? It's like, relax. Mm-hmm. Like, it'll, it'll, it'll happen when it happens, yeah. right? Um, once I took the bus that first time, though, I was allowed to go out and meet with friends mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, so that was something. Um, I would go to the American Center, and they had like a library of books in English. I read a lot because, again, mm-hmm. there's a lot of waiting around time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned how to like go to a cafe and meet a friend and like drink one orange soda and watch people and talk for hours because time, again, is not the same thing. It's not like you have to be back at 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Well, that could be four, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it just like that's what like shifting your mindset about you know what is time well spent um we went to the beach they they had a beach house and we would go spend time at the beach you know we they did take me around morocco so i could see more of the country um i got to see rabat um marrakesh um and some smaller beach coastal towns mm-hmm. so like yeah i mean 
that's funny when you say that. What did you do like during the day? And like I said, I worked in the kiosk yeah. sometimes. Um, sometimes my family would try to convert me to Islam. They would just bring people over to like tell me the joys of being a Muslim woman. Mm. And like, I never knew what was going to happen. And it wasn't <laughs> in my control. So it was literally just, uh, yeah, just like being part of the culture. Yeah. And that that was a big lesson and you would think I would have remembered that lesson when I went to Spain but I remember having to learn that lesson all over again yeah. of like relax mm -hmm. just you know we're just sitting here we're just sitting here and talking and enjoying the sunset or the siesta time mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that's a very valuable lesson that I'm still learning so <laughs> I'm glad that you got that <laughs> exposure to that idea so young you know <laughs> right right yeah um, how did you um, keep up with your, your folks back home while you were in Morocco? I wrote letters. Okay. Yeah. This was before any other. And it was too expensive. My mom was like, don't too call me. to call. <laughs> she was like, don't call me. I mean, she's like, I figure I'll figure out if you're dead or something. But yeah, we wrote letters. <laughs> well, that makes and sense. I even I wrote a column for, I was writing a, a column for a community newspaper in Milwaukee. And I even sent a column like I just wrote it out uh -huh. and sent it so they could publish it from, you know, my, it was called Thoughts from Tharps, very original. Yeah. And they um, published it. You know, I hand wrote my article for that month. Mm -hmm. uh, yep, that makes sense. I was thinking maybe, maybe you might have had calling cards, but I can see how that would have just been way too expensive. So, yeah, yeah. I think I was allowed to call when we got there just mm -hmm. to let our parents know that we had arrived, like safely, that we'd hit, hit you know, touch down mm -hmm. in the country. But after that, I never spoke with my family. Okay. And you were okay with that? Or you, you got used to that as time went on? Yeah. I mean, there was no option. Right. It wasn't even like, I mean, my like, again, I was lucky that my sister had gone through this process, yeah. you know, years before. And we had been involved with this organization. And there was no such thing as, you know, calling. Maybe there were calling cards, but I don't think so. I don't feel like I... I don't think that was an issue, like an option. It was just long distance calls, which would have been really massively expensive. And my mom trusted the process enough that like, again, if something horrible had happened, somebody would have found her. Right, right. Um, <laughs> and, it, the, and, and that was part of this program though. It was like, you're not gonna have, con like you have to go through a very rigorous application process yeah. and interview um, to make sure you are up for this because if you couldn't and that was my mom is a therapist and there were a few times when we had to send students back home because they like had mental breakdowns because mm. they, they couldn't handle it um, like you really do and that's why they may say like you might have applied to go for a year and they would say no you should probably go for summer mm -hmm. based on maybe what your profile was like so I don't remember being like, oh, my gosh, I want to call home. Mm -hmm. I do remember, like, again, in the beginning being like, what did I do? <laughs> and I didn't want to go home, though. I just was like, I wish I could be in a, in Spain. Like, and again, I'd mm -hmm. never been to Spain at that point. I just romanticized it in my mind. But um, um, I was, like, mad at myself that I had put myself in a situation that was so foreign. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I know you said that you hadn't, you haven't been back to Morocco since you went when you were in No, Mexico. I did go Oh, back. you did. Oh, you did. I did go back. Okay. When I was in Spain in college, I went back to Morocco. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Because I was wondering if you, if there's any chance that you might have kept in touch with your host family. And... Oh, I did. Oh, okay. So, so 
there is an epilogue to this story. <laughs> is that my um, host sister, you know, like I said, I had eight sisters, mm-hmm. but the one who spoke English, who actually did AFS herself, and they placed her in Alaska. So she spent a year in Alaska, mm. believe it or not. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she ended up marrying a French man and moved to the south of France. And because I married a Spaniard and was often in Spain, um, we have um, – I went to visit her. She came to visit me in New York. Like, So we have actually stayed in touch. And oh, we're good. just – I just got a postcard from her the other day. That's so wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. So, in fact, I hope to see her this summer sometime because I'm going to be going back to Spain for the first time in a while. Yeah. Wow. That's so good y'all have been able to keep in touch after all this time, you know. Yeah, that's the and thing about EFS is really, it's it, they really, it, like I said, it's really about the family experience. Mm-hmm. So, I know, um, like my friend Lucy, her, even though that family wasn't, you know, like the original family, they came, the whole family came and stayed with her mother oh, wow. in New York. Yeah, so... Um, the, the idea is that you're building these connections, mm-hmm. not just like, uh, you know, not like what college is more about, you know, you're getting a resume builder or maybe you're just trying to practice the language. Mm-hmm. AFS really is about building these connections that hopefully would last beyond that summer. And I know everybody doesn't, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of people do. Yeah. And uh, you said this was that experience was what made you want to travel more. Um and so you ended up going to Spain in, in college. Um, so had you continued studying Spanish and then going to Spain was part of your, like, uh, improving your language proficiency? Is that why you went to Spain? Yes. Um, I really, when I started studying Spanish in fifth grade, mm-hmm. um, I had this great teacher. He was Cuban, but he would take, he would take the um, students um, on a two-week trip to Spain, like, during spring break every year. And my parents were like, we're not paying for that. That's crazy. Like, it was an expensive <laughs> trip for two weeks. And they were like, nope, you can go to Spain when you're in college. Mm-hmm. So I think they really planted that idea in my mind. Mm-hmm. In high school, my my high school started an exchange program with a school in Spain where, like, 10 students would from that Spanish high school came to our school. And then 10 students from our school would go to their school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man, this is my this is the big break. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, I was the most enthusiastic Spanish student. I loved my Spanish teacher in high school. Um, and again, my parents were like, we're not paying for that. I went to a private school, so mm. they were paying enough for my education. Okay. And they were like, again, let us reiterate, not paying for like a pleasure tour of Spain that costs, you know, I don't even know how many thousands of dollars mm. it was. Um, again, they're like, you can go to Spain in college. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so get to college. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, again, when I was, like, looking at colleges, you know, people are usually like, oh, do you have this major? I was like, do you have study abroad? Like, that was my, like, number one question. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even care what classes you offer, but do you offer a study abroad program? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was, like, clear to me from the day I stepped onto my college campus that I would um, study in Spain. And, again, it was... It was Spain. It wasn't South America. Um, and I think, it, again, the seed was just planted from those first years where my Spanish teacher, like, I always had a really good relationship with, that's not true. I just, I just remembered, like, three Spanish teachers that I did not like. But <laughs> um, my first Spanish teacher in middle school and my last Spanish teacher in high school were both, like, really significant people in my life. Mm-hmm. And so they both had a love affair with Spain so mm-hmm. I think that rubbed off on me yeah and I figured I would get to other countries but I was like 
Spain is where the language started. So let's start there. Hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I did want to totally immerse myself. And I had completely romanticized this idea that Spain, like Josephine Baker was my total muse. And I thought, you know, just like Josephine Baker went to Paris mm-hmm. and was able to be her authentic self, I thought I would go to Spain. <laughs> this is based on nothing. But like, <laughs> I just was like, yeah, Spain is going to be the place where I feel the most free. Hmm. That was totally built up in my mind and didn't turn out that way. But um, that's what, I, that was my thinking. And I actually started taking German when I was in college too. So I was hmm. taking two languages. Um, and I originally tried to go to spend a semester in Austria and a semester in Spain. Um, that's what my plan was. Because, again, I was just a, like, I just imagined that I was going to be this amazing polyglot, that I was going to be multilingual. Yeah. You know, after my host sister is like, you dumb Americans, you only speak one language. <laughs> so I was like, I must prove her wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but my study abroad advisor at the time was like, one, you you won't get the language development that you want in one semester Mm. just at the moment when you're like really dominating the language you're going to be switching and going to another country I don't advise that and he also said that he thought that I might face a lot of racism in Vienna which is where I wanted to go and Mm. I was like really I mean I don't know if that's true or not like if I would have experienced more racism in Vienna than I would have any other European country Mm -hmm. but I took his word and um, I am glad I did because Everybody I know who went to Spain for, like, a semester, they were just getting to that place of, like, language fluency, mm-hmm. and then they went to go home. Yeah. Whereas um, I feel like, and I, it took a while to get, like, I didn't think I'd have as much culture shock as I had in, in Morocco. And I didn't have, like, it wasn't straight up culture shock, but it took a lot to get acclimated to Spanish life. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, like, my head hurt from translating in my mind mm-hmm. and... It was just about the end of my first semester there that um, I realized I didn't have to translate anymore and I could mm. carry on a conversation. I mean, I'd been ta- like I knew Spanish like perfectly on paper. Right, right. But until you're actually in country, that speaking like in Spain, like nobody's speaking English, right? It's mm-hmm. not a country where it's not like, you know, the Netherlands or something where you could hear a lot of English or you could default by like hoping that somebody would understand you in English. That wasn't the case, especially, yeah, that just wasn't the case in Spain. So um, I had to speak Spanish, you know, and speak it well if I wanted to be, you know, participate in the culture and the community. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you went for the full year then instead of just a semester? Correct. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to to go back to something. Um, did participants in the the AFS program did they not have to pay for? Because I remember you you said your parents didn't want to pay for you to go to Spain. Did they have to pay for you to go to Morocco or was that subsidized? Yes. Oh, okay. yes, yes, they did pay. But I believe there was um, scholarship money. Okay, I think there was like there were like scholarships and um, I can't be I don't know for sure, but I do know that like. The program in in um, AFS for like the entire summer was cheaper than what my school was charging for like a two week trip okay. to Spain, which is why they were like, gotcha. "You must be crazy if you think we're paying for that." <laughs> okay, all right, that that clears things up for me. <laughs> so, um, so you went to Spain in college. Mm-hmm. Um, was this like early on in your like college career? Or was it later? I went my junior year. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. And where in Spain were you? 
I went to Salamanca, which is a small town. It's a university town um, about two hours uh, like northwest of Madrid. So um, the University of Salamanca has is like one of the oldest universities in Europe and the oldest university in Spain, I believe. Um, and I chose it like my college. I went to Smith College and my college had a program like their own program in Spain, in the south, in mm-hmm. Cordoba. But again, I think you'll notice a pattern here. I was like, I don't want to go on the regular program. Like, I don't want to be with other students that I know. I want to have a really, like, immersive experience where I'll have to just, you know, really figure things out on my own. So that was one thing. And also, it was expensive because I went to a small private college. And if you went on their program, you just paid your regular tuition. Mm -hmm. Whereas I found an independent program. I mean, it was just another program, another, it wasn't affiliated with the university. Mm-hmm. Um, and their their tuition was like much cheaper than my college tuition. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let me give my parents a break. <laughs> and like, I could make a, not that they wouldn't have wanted me to study abroad, but they weren't like, yes, you must. So I was like, mom and dad, you should let me do this because I'm giving you a tuition break. Like it's much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Plus I got a scholarship from that organization. Um, and at the time living in Spain was cheaper than living in the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, I was like all told it's a bargain for me to study for a year <laughs> abroad. Um, also, again, I was an education major and most study abroad programs for Spain like you study Spanish like you study Spanish literature and things like that and mm-hmm. I was like I need to study education because I need these credits or I won't graduate on time mm-hmm. and this program allowed you to um, enroll directly in the University of Salamanca which had an education department so my Smith was very good about allowing students to create their own study away kind of program nice. so once I got it cleared by Smith, you know, I was like, great. So I can take, you know, two courses while I'm abroad at the university that will count towards my education major. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing about Salamanca. I I probably wouldn't have chosen that place to go to based on my aesthetics and what I enjoy. Mm-hmm. But again, it was like a practical decision. Like, great. I have they have, had, they have an education department. I can take the classes. I'll graduate on time. That's where I'm going. Yeah. So. Um, and it, it, it's a small, it's a university town. It's not, I don't want to say a small town. I think it's, I think in Spain, Salamanca is considered a city, but it would be like the equivalent of like, um, kind of like Madison, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, okay. where everything revolves around the university mm-hmm. and you do have a lot of international students who come there, but the locals are like small town people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So um, even though you had international students, like people would stare at me, like, "Oh my god, a black person!" And like one time, a woman was walking with her young child who was screaming and crying in the street, and to get her kid to stop screaming, she pointed at me and was like, "If you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you to that," and pointed at me. And are I was you like, "Serious? What? Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's terrible." Yeah, so there were crazy things like that. Like, one time a bunch of little boys chased me down an alley singing the lyrics to the, um, like, commercial for Hot Chocolate, which is, like, the hot chocolate container has, like, black women on the cover. And so at first I thought they were just, like, going to throw something at me. Then I realized, I was like, wait a minute, that's the hot chocolate song they're singing. Mm -hmm. Like, they're singing a commercial. 
Um, but yeah, so my experience in Spain, again, just like just like Morocco, it was challenging in a lot of ways because of the black being black in Spain was just um, it was annoying. Hmm. Um, it wasn't I wasn't scared for my life. I wasn't um, yeah I wasn't fearful of really anything. But I couldn't just kind of and again it was probably would have had a different experience if I was in a bigger city. But hmm. in Salamanca, which again there were plenty of international students there, but it was still you're still in a small town mentality. So yeah. walking around, it was always, the, you know, la morena, morena, you know, it was like mm. people always had to point out that there was the black girl. And again, I wasn't the only black girl there. There was, there were five of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes we'd go eat out together and freak everyone out. And it was wow. like, oh my gosh. Um, but that was also helpful because having other black students there was, you know, we could instantly, you know, connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I had friends who were blonde and tall, and they also were always like, Rubia, 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 you know, like Blondie, like anybody who doesn't look like a normal Spaniard, which is not even, a, like, their Spaniards look like everything. They, you know, mm-hmm. they have all different, you know, phenotypes. But if you stood out in any way, people would um, point that out all the time. Yeah. So, um so in that respect, I was annoyed. Um, but I didn't walk around Spain annoyed the whole time. Mm-hmm. But by the end of my experience there, um, had I not met my future husband, I probably wouldn't have been racing to go back to Spain. Mm. I can I can understand that. Yeah. Just um, something I was wondering about your the classes you were taking. You were taking mm-hmm. education classes at the university. Was that in Spanish or in English? Yeah. I was taking education and I am crazy. I also took German while I was there because I mentioned that I had started studying German when I started college. Mm-hmm. So I was taking German in Spanish, which was insane. Oh, my goodness. And then education, yeah. was that in English then? No, that was also in Spanish. Oh, so everything yes. was in Spanish. Yeah, I was wow. just taking I was like okay. another student at the university Wow, taking Spanish. So, That's so you had to you had to take a language, you had to take a, a class to make sure your Spanish was, you know, up to par, and mm-hmm. I passed, so that's why I was able to take the class. Wow, that is so impressive. I can I can see how your your proficiency must have just flourished during that time. Um, yeah, it had to. It was really challenging, and I was so scared, and I'm, again, I'm a person who always is participating in class and mm-hmm. raising my hand, but there I was just literally, like, taking notes furiously all the time and just hoping that I was understanding everything properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did it take for you to get to a point where you felt like you kind of had your head above water as far as understanding what was going on in class? I feel like it was, it literally probably was the first three months, like the first, um, yeah, like the first three months. I remember the day we got there, we had an orientation in Madrid. We had an orientation in Madrid for like a week, and we were staying in like a like a dorm. And the first day, like we were just, I mean, it was so different than Morocco. Like Morocco, we were high school students, and someone was there to get you off the plane, and there was just hand-holding all the way. Here, it was like they told you where to meet for orientation. So you had to get off the airplane get your luggage, get a taxi, and Mm -hmm. get into this, go go to this building, right? Mm -hmm. And again, you're like, how am I going to do that? That sounds like a lot of like, but what if I get lost? What if I can't understand the taxi driver? What if the taxi driver can't, what if I can't hail a taxi? (laughs) Uh, And I'm jet lagged, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, I remember 
doing all that, sweating like buckets, like just being so nervous. I got got to the location. I was overcharged. Like the tax driver was mm. like, "Yeah, you have to charge extra for it because it's Wednesday." You know, oh, like just no, crazy yeah. stuff. <laughs> but, um, I remember getting out of the car, and the orientation director was there, and I was like, "Oh, thank God, I made it!" Uh-huh. And I expected him to respond to me in English because I asked like a question, and he was like responding to me in Spanish. And I was like, "I was like, I'm so tired. I'm so jet. Like, can you just please tell me in English?" He looked at me like I was crazy. He mm. was like, "No." And so the entire, like, orientation was in Spanish. And I was like, I can't believe these people will not just, like, this is life and death stuff. They're trying Mm -hmm. to tell us where we have to be, where we need to go. I just stood next to this girl who sounded like she knew what she was doing Mm -hmm. and just prayed that she, I was like, I'll just follow her. Mm -hmm. I was, again, that moment, I just felt like, oh, Lord, what have I done? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, like, three months later, like, almost towards the end of the semester by December, um, yeah, I felt like things were clicking. Like, I was, I had that realization that I was dreaming in Spanish, and I had that realization that I wasn't translating and then talking, Mm -hmm. right, that I could just participate. And I remember having those realizations that, wait, I, I have like my Spanish has improved mm-hmm. um, and I even got a like I had an internship um, I was working in a school and um, like volunteering interning I think it was an internship I don't know if it was called an internship or volunteering but I was working at a school so it was just really like I was you know, little by little my in- integration into the community and like things that I was doing like proved to myself that I was you know past the point of like stumbling through my words yeah. and, and hoping people understood me. Mm-hmm. So I was, yeah, I was doing, and I actually, I was tutoring um, my my German professor's son in English. Um, and so there was all these different ways that I had figured out how to participate in the culture and the community, like beyond just going to school. And again, it was really important for me not to just hang out with Americans. Like right. I really didn't want to do that, even though I ended up living with um, two American students a Spanish woman and a German woman, mm. but um, like you couldn't avoid it because a lot of Spanish people didn't want to be our friends, right? They were so used to this kind of mm. revolving um, group of American students coming in to study. Oh, yeah. They weren't just, oh, so excited to meet Americans. I mean, the men were, you know, the men wanted to like, of mm. course, get with the easy American girls, but <laughs> the making friends with Spanish students wasn't that easy. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I did have friends who were Americans, but I really wanted to, like I said, find opportunities to, you know, wh- wherever I could um, be within a Spanish, like, community in some way. Yeah. Well, you and your roommates, were you in, like, an apartment situation or a dorm situation? Yeah, so my first semester I was with – so the way the program worked is that they would place you with a family. Mm-hmm. And at the time, this is like really interesting, but at the time, um, many of the families who took in students, again, because I was comparing everything to my experience in Morocco, these families weren't like interested in having a cross-cultural experience. Many of these families were divorced women Hmm. I think divorce just, it hadn't just become legal, but there were just like plenty of divorced or widowed women mm. who needed to make money. And they weren't necessarily going out into the workforce, but they could have American students 
in their home yeah. and they got paid for it. You know, our program paid them. So like my housing situation, I lived with a woman who had two teenage children. She was divorced, but she like packed in as many students as possible into her apartment. Mm. So I had a roommate, which was fine. I mean, my, the room was adequate. Um, um, but then she had another American student, two Spanish. I mean, she basically was running a rooming house in her mm-hmm. apartment. Yeah. And you could tell she was stressed. She And she and her two teenagers shared one room. Like, they, three of them, shared a bedroom so that she could rent out all of the other space. So it was like, you could only take a shower for a certain amount of time and only up until a certain part of night. And, like, meals, like, if you missed the time that she served a meal like there was no other food for you mm-hmm. I mean and she wasn't mean but like this is how she was trying to run her I mean essentially she was running a business mm-hmm. so um, even though I thought that and she like came into our room on the first day and said no speaking English like <laughs> you're here to learn Spanish I, if I hear you speaking English you know it's like okay mm-hmm. um, you could get an apartment um, at the beginning, when I first got there, I was like, oh, gosh, no, I'm, I'm not ready to do that. And, mm-hmm. like, I want to have this, you know, kind of, again, I was thinking of Morocco. Like, I want to have a family experience. But came to find out that, you know, my senora was not, um, that that's not what she was doing this for. Mm-hmm. And I also hated her cooking. <laughs> she <had a> <laughs> Whenever she was angry, she would oversalt everything. Ooh. I mean, like, everything. <laughs> like, so salty. And, um... <laughs> She, uh, yeah, like her food was just not that good. Mm -hmm. And it was like my, you know, my program fee included, you know, this was room and board. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I could be eating so much better. Mm -hmm. Like I I could cook better than this. So um, I thought I was going to like, and she didn't have an oven, which wasn't that unusual Mm -hmm. in Spain. But so everything was either boiled or fried in her Presto Fry Daddy. So Mm -hmm. like almost everything was fried in just vats of oil and I was like I'm gonna die like I'm just gonna <laughs> die from salt increase intake and I mean I'm not like that of a healthy person but I was like oh my gosh this is not gonna be good so mm-hmm. um probably by halfway through the first semester I started looking for alternative living arrangements and coincidentally met this really wonderful woman who was not on my program she's on a different program and she was looking for living arrangements so we bonded together and we both like we want to live with a Spanish person so we put up signs looking for I mean it was very easy again it was like a college town so finding an apartment finding roommates was pretty easy like you could just put up a sign and um we found an apartment and um and we had like I said we had a Spaniard and a German woman living with us for the first little bit but then the German woman's parents decided that they didn't want to pay for her to be in Spain anymore so Mm -hmm. she left and we had another American student join us as well Um, and that was kind of cool too because um, we were four women again three Americans and a Spanish woman and the Spanish woman always had her friends over Mm -hmm. and our apartment seemed to become like I don't know the the lost refuge apartment so there was always any number of like (laughs) foreign people like we heard you were cooking so we're coming by <laughs> so there's always just somebody at our table um you know there's a canadian guy and there was like these two brit these two dutch guys like it was just always somebody and and, and that just made for a richer experience yeah. um we also didn't have an oven but we were and we were really broke but we were always managing to, because again, there was so much extra time. Mm-hmm. Like that was the thing. So it would be like, what elaborate meal can we make with four dollars today? Mm-hmm. You know. So 
Um, we even figured out how to make chocolate chip cookies in the toaster oven. So, wow. like, so yeah, so that, that experience was really, um, like I said, I was looking for opportunities to immerse myself in Spain, but I think probably more than anything, I, I immersed myself in like an international community. Yeah. Do you feel like that was, you know, just as worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like my life has always been a cultivation of different people coming together mm-hmm. and sharing their shared experiences. So the reality is, like I mentioned before, is that most Spaniards in this town were not looking to right. become friends with some foreigners who were going to pass in and out of their lives. Like, what would be in it for them? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was always that person who maybe wanted to practice their English, but there wasn't actually a name. There was a name for that. It was an intercambio. Like, you could put a sign up and say, I'd like to practice my English. And, you know, I want to practice my Spanish. So you would meet on a regular basis. And I had an, I had a couple of intercambios. Like, I had a couple of arrangements like that where we would meet on a regular basis and we'd go to a cafe and we'd just talk. And I would talk in Spanish and my, my partner would speak in English. But we weren't friends, mm-hmm. right? But it was still a friendly interaction. And it was a cool way to, you know at least interact with somebody from Mm -hmm. Spain. Um, But more realistically, I was going to be connected to people who were like me, who were in Spain for a year, who were in Spain because they love Spanish culture, who were in Spain because they wanted to travel. And those were the relationships that felt authentic. And those are the ones that blossomed. And those are the ones that, you know, I maintained even after I left because, you know, we had something in common. Yeah. So, um, it didn't bother me. It bothered the like perfection me who had this mm. preconceived notion of what my travel in Spain was going to be. But a lot of that was broken within the first like right. you know two months that I was there. It was like oh reset. Yeah, this isn't what you had planned in your mind since you were in fifth grade, mm. right? Um, so many um, like romanticized ideas that I had had to be broken. Um, but I feel like. You know, everything happens for a reason and everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. Again, I met my husband while I was there. And so even though I thought, eh, Spain, maybe not for me, mm-hmm. it speaks of my like second home. Right. <laughs> and I ended up discovering things about Spain that um, I didn't know before. And that has given me a lot to write about and talk about my my memoir, Kiki Gaspacho, that I wrote. You know, I ended up thinking, like, how am I going to make peace with this country that feels so like anti-black um so as a writer i was like well i have to find a story about blackness that i can connect myself to and ended up discovering this like hidden history of black um people living in spain as slaves and then as free black people you know dating back to the 15th century and so like that was one of my best stories like Mm -hmm. that was one of like that was the book that was um you know was um, awarded like best book of one of the best books of 2018 by the Washington Post and you know was starred reviews in different publications so like I have to thank Spain for giving me an opportunity to find a story um, and for finding this again this ability to like see myself in places where others don't mm-hmm. right and that was like a really important lesson to learn that you know, even in the United States, you know, my, you know, what does it mean to be a black woman in the United States? I always thought that I didn't fit it. I wasn't black enough. I wasn't the right kind of black. Mm. <clears throat> in Spain, again, and in Morocco, I had to define blackness because it wasn't defined for me. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of, it was freeing in that way. Mm-hmm. And that made me realize that 
you don't have to be a certain type of black and whatever yourself is, it's still going to look different to somebody depending on where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. So it, it was like, again, maybe to wrap this all up in some way <laughs> is that travel really has freed me to like define myself for who I really want to be. And it has allowed me to see like commonalities in people who don't look like me at all. Yeah. Um, and that has, that's just kind of provided me with this, um, this continual desire to keep telling these stories on my blog and my podcast and books to show that there are so many things that we do have in common, even if we may look different on the outside. And I don't yeah. want this to sound like polyamorous. Like, I don't want it to be like, yeah, we're all the same. <laughs> it's not that. Uh, yeah, but like, like when I wrote Kinky Gaspacho, that's the name of my memoir. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I had Jewish people write to me and say, oh my goodness, this is my story. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, German people write to me and say, you know, this was my story, except this was when we were in France and blah, 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 like growing up. Like, there was just so many people who, like, found a connection to this feeling of having to, you know, define your identity, you know, to have people challenge your belonging in a place. Um, And it just, again, it's just what I now want to do over and over again is kind of highlight these stories of, you know, commonality and similar experiences and, you know, kind of specifically or I should say particularly kind of the black experience in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. And um, I'm, I was wondering, could you share a little bit about how you ended up meeting your husband while you were in Spain? I just think that's a really interesting <laughs> tidbit about your life. That no, I mean, I wrote a whole book about it, so I can't really claim that it's too personal. So, um, <laughs> so like I said, I met him when mm-hmm. I was in uh, German class. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of both eyeing each other, but both too shy to, like, say anything. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know how to appropriately approach the opposite sex in Spanish. Like, I know how to say, like, you know, please pass the beer or whatever. But, like, I didn't know how to say, like, hi. (laughs) How are you? You know, like, I didn't know what to say. So I just started following him. Again, Another oppor- another example of when you have a lot of extra time, mm-hmm. you can you can actually legitimately tell yourself that following somebody after school, like basically stalking somebody, mm-hmm. is okay because oh, what goodness. else do you have to do that day? <laughs> so, um, I spent probably a semester just staring at him across the room, and like there was a big the class was very large, so mm-hmm. I could stare at him literally across the room and not even have him know I existed. And I would talk about it all the time to my friends. Um, and I'm usually not that kind of person. I went to a women's college that was very, you know, feminist thinking. And mm-hmm. I actually legitimately said, I will not be one of those girls who comes back with a Spanish boyfriend. Like, that is so tacky. Mm-hmm. That will not be me. Um, but I was bored. And so I was like, mm-hmm. why not? But um, I spent a lot of time talking about, like, yeah, there's the, the cute boy in German class. That's just what I was referring to him mm-hmm. as. Um, and he was usually surrounded by women whenever he, like, came in. But that's because the language classes were predominantly female. Mm-hmm. So it's not really anything against him. But all I saw was that he was surrounded by women. So I really just hung back. But one of my girlfriends, who is Belgian, who did speak, like, four languages, mm-hmm. she was like, I'm so sick of you talking about this person. Can you just say hello already? Like, this is getting annoying. Like, <laughs> And I was like, I don't know what to say. 
And so she came to class with me one day, which seems odd, but she, like I said, there was a lot of people in the class. So she's like, nobody will know. And I speak German, so it'll be fine. (laughs) So she came to class with me one day. We sat like right behind him and she struck up a conversation with him so quickly. I almost cried Mm -hmm. because I had been trying to, like, I think I had said like, what page are we on? And can I use your pencil? Like those were the two (laughs) sentences I had managed to get out over the course of an entire semester. And she came in, struck up a conversation with him right away, and literally led us, like, out the door when the class was over. Mm -hmm. And that just started a routine where we would walk home from class together. Mm -hmm. Um, We would get to the Plaza Mayor, the main square. He would go left and I would go right. You know, his, his dorm was this way and mine was, my apartment was the other way. And we just kept doing that. And we would talk and chat. And then, you know, he'd go his way, my go mine. And one day he, um, we saw each other, you know, over the weekend, like on accident, we, we bumped into each other. I was at the um, health food store buying oatmeal because oats were not eaten by Spanish people. That's like horse food. Like you don't eat oatmeal. <laughs> and so the only place I could find it was at this health food store. Mm-hmm. And um, he saw me coming out and he was like, oh my God, are you sick? And I was like, no. And he's like, why are you eating oatmeal? And I was like, <laughs> Because it's good. Like, and actually, he, had, he he approached, it was, I think it was at the next, the following Monday or something, he had said, like, well, are you sick? Like, why were you eating oatmeal? And I was explaining that it's a tasty breakfast treat. Mm-hmm. So um, he, with this got into a conversation about vegetarianism, because then it was like, only vegetarians eat oatmeal. And I was like, that is not true. Mm-hmm. But I am like a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian in Spain by not by choice, but because I was so poor that I couldn't afford meat. Mm. So, I mean, on a regular basis. So, like, all of the cooking we did was vegetarian. So we got into this fake argument about whether or not vegetarian eating was satisfying or not. And he was like, impossible to have a meal without meat. And I was like, I could make you a meal without meat, and I'm sure you would find yourself satisfied. And he's like, mm. okay, what time can I be there? And I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. But then I was like, but... Okay, so um, that became our first date was he came over for a vegetarian meal um, and I cooked like a demon like I and I'm not like I like meat as much as the next person. But again, I just wasn't eating it because I couldn't afford it. Yeah. And so um, I had come up with some pretty good recipes. And so I made like a big pot of lentils. I made like I was cooking all day and he showed up like 30 minutes late and I thought oh my goodness he's just stood me up okay maybe I was making too much out of this again cooking all day long um and when I say cooking all day long, I mean I was making like I made like samosas from scratch like mm-hmm. I was sweating in that kitchen and again remember there's no oven and like this mm-hmm. is a lot of effort and also I mentioned that there were always people coming to our house yeah. for food well for some reason word got out that I was cooking oh no and six people in the kitchen and they were all like well he stood you up oh well well at least we can all eat this food and I was just (laughs) embarrassed and the doorbell rings 30 minutes later and he's just smiling right there and I was like you're late he's like I'm not late I'm Spanish like (laughs) that's what he said and he's like on top of that I'm from the south of Spain where we're really always this is normal so again, I should have remembered these messages from, from these Morocco. lessons from Morocco, yeah. but I didn't. 
And so, yeah, so he came and had dinner, and um, he was like, it was, and it was crazy because half the people that day at the table that day didn't speak English, and half of them didn't speak Spanish. Okay. And I was like, it was, it was so stressful. And the kitchen was like the size, it was a tiny kitchen. Mm-hmm. We literally were using the ironing board to put some <laughs> of the overflow um, food on. Yeah. But he was so great at, he spoke both languages pretty well at that point. And he was the kind of connector between all people. I was so nervous that I think I said two words the whole time. But at the end, I was like, so did you like the meal? He's like, it was delicious. But it would have been better with a pork chop. And I was like, (laughs) really? But that was the beginning. And, like, we've been together pretty much ever since. We didn't get married until, like, it took us seven years to get married. So it wasn't like we were, like, right then and there. I mean, and there was a lot of back and forth because he had an extra year of school to finish. He moved to New York. He came to New York for like three months on a tourist visa while he was still in school mm-hmm. after I moved there. And we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I mean, I never went back to live in Spain, but I would go visit. He'd come visit. He, he finally moved to the States in like 96, 19, like two years after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, we were in New York together for like 15 years. And then we moved to Philadelphia and yeah, yeah got married along the way, had kids and yeah. um I've been trying to go back and forth. Once you have kids, it makes it a lot more difficult and more expensive, obviously. Not not difficult. It's just expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, when our first child was born, you could still get to Europe, like, on a some if you were lucky, four or $500 ticket. And then I think it was 9-11 that happened where ticket prices went skyrocketing. And it went mm-hmm. from you would you would have to pay at over $1,000. So um, our trips back and forth ground to a halt once we became a family with two children. Yeah. Okay, wow, that's such a such a unique story of how y'all met and came together and sharing your lives together. Now, um, would you say that your Spanish is fluent by now? Or, um, I think it once was, but I haven't been back to Spain for it'll be seven years. Oh, I'm when I I'm back this summer for the right. first time in like seven years. Um. I feel like because it once was, it will return. Mm-hmm. My my husband speaks to my children only in Spanish. He does not speak to them in English at all. He never has. So mm-hmm. I'm constantly hearing Spanish. So it's not like I'm not using it at all. But I, it is definitely rusty. But it's been in there for so long and it's been used for so long. Like I'm not, um, like if you ask me to speak Arabic right now, like I could pull out two words, you know, German, <laughs> I could pull out two sentences but Spanish you know it's fully there I just need to be back in Spain I think but it's still all there okay and um you mentioned uh My American Melting Pot you know your website and your podcast um I guess I'm just wondering you know if you could briefly just give an idea of like what your hopes are for it going forward because it's relatively new right yeah, well, the blog yeah. actually, the blog itself, My American Melting Pot, started in um, like 12 years ago. And mm-hmm. I launched that blog kind of when everybody else was launching a blog. Um, because as a journalist, I wanted to have a place where I could write more freely about mm-hmm. the topics that I wanted to talk about. Most of those had to deal with um, race and pop culture in some way. Yeah. Um, or just, you know, because I was a black mom raising mixed race children who were also bilingual and bicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just so many things in my life that I wanted to discuss, but 
you know, uh, Glamour Magazine, who I was writing for at the time, wasn't interested in that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Entertainment Weekly, who I was writing for, wasn't interested in that perspective per se. So I started the blog so I could literally just kind of write these things that were happening to me. Yeah. Um, and then um, in 2012, I'm sorry, in 2018, just recently, this last year, beginning of 2018, um, that's not true. Was it 2018? No, more like 2016, 17, after the election of the person who's currently in the White House, I found myself, <laughs> like, so angry and wanting yeah. to do something. And I right. you know, joined this group and started this thing, but realized that, like, my most effective way of expressing my anger and trying to inspire others to do things was through writing. So mm-hmm. I decided to relaunch My American Melting Pot with a very much more definite agenda to um, discuss issues of race and popular culture with, um, you know, again, like as an educator, right, to bring forth topics that people aren't necessarily um, able to find these answers about you know, what does it mean to truly, um, um, like, to talk about race in a way that's aimed at resolving our racial problems and not just rehashing them, Mm -hmm. Um, to talk about what does it mean to live a multiracial, multicultural existence, and how just doing that is a form of resistance, right? Um, How you know, looking at pop culture through a multicultural lens is a service because so many of us are still waiting for our stories to be told. We're still waiting for people who look like us or who are in relationships like us or who travel like us see our versions of very common stories and very common issues portrayed. So I say that, you know, it's like everything I do is told through a multicultural perspective. So the podcast is a new thing. I just launched the podcast in 2018. Same idea is talking about race and popular culture, like where those two things intersect, but always from a multicultural perspective. So I just, my last episode was about traveling as a multiracial family um, Mm -hmm. because there are challenges to traveling as a multiracial family that people might not even be aware of. If you are in a multiracial family, either formed through adoption or through, you know, an interracial relationship, um, people have all kinds of expectations. And most recently, um, Cindy McCain made headlines because she claimed she was witnessing a case of child trafficking at an Arizona airport. When in fact, it was just a mother and her child who were Mm. multiracial, like the mom was one race and her kid was, you know, mixed race. Mm. And, um, she thought it looked strange that their ethnicities didn't match. And so mm. that's just one example. But these are the kinds of things that um, if you are in a multiracial family, for example, you think about these things all the time. Yeah. Um, whether it's something as basic as like everybody uses different hair products or it's something as scary as making sure you have the passport of your children, even if you're flying domestically, because your relationship to your child will be questioned. Um mm. Um, so the podcast, again, is like, again, we talk about that, but also talk about technology um, and how technology can be racist, um, mm, which, yeah. again, my goal is to foster these conversations about race and culture and identity um, in a way that 
not just to rehash them to rehash them, but that fosters deeper understanding or change in thinking of the general population. I feel like we are so mired in stereotypes when it comes to race, talking about race, um, that we don't get we don't move forward because we're still having the same kind of tired conversations and not truly um, like interrogating certain issues from a perspective of people of all different races and cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's all very valuable and worthwhile work that you're doing. Um, I did catch like a a few, I listened through some of your episodes before this, but I'm definitely going to go back and like sit down and actually (laughs) listen through. Cause I think it's a really interesting concept that you, that you have. I mean, not just a concept, but like a, almost like a mission that you're on, you know? I am. Um, Yes, I am. There is a mission and I have a mission statement and I have a a melting pot manifesto. Um, Like I really want people to be able to talk about race and not be nervous and scared. Um, Mm -hmm. I want people to recognize, I don't want to say there's there's not humor in racism, but that like talking about race and building bridges it can be as basic as talking about hair or talking about mm-hmm. lotion or talking yeah. about, you know, traveling, things that we do or food. You know, these are things that we talk and do and experience every day. And sometimes the way to like big change is like with little steps. And um, I, I'm hoping that I'm giving people the kind of confidence and ideas and inspiration that this is how we change things is by kind of little steps. Right. right and it doesn't sure. have to be scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I hope that continues to, to, to do well. And um, I know we've been talking for a while, but I did want to ask you about your, because um, you said you're on the study abroad committee for, yes. is that the College of Journalism? It's the School of, Me- so the Department of Journalism is in the School of Media and Communication at Temple. And we okay. do have, so Temple University is a massive university. And they have their own education abroad department. But we in the School of Media and Communication, which is a much smaller you know, entity within the school, we have our own study abroad office and mm. our own programs really targeted to students um, who are studying media and communication fields. Gotcha. And so like, what does your work involve? Um, or entail being part of that community or goodness I can't talk being part of that committee what do you typically do as part of that committee so one of the things that we do so we have like um, maybe like five or six very um, uh, specific unique programs that we run Mm -hmm. so um, we have a London program we have a Dublin Ireland program we have a program in South Africa and um, we have school in, Temple has a campus in Rome and a campus in Tokyo. So we are constantly um, cycling through um, student applications for students who want to go to those programs. And then we are also on almost all of those programs, a professor from Temple, from Philadelphia Temple, gets to lead the student group who goes abroad. So. There's mm-hmm. always a faculty member who's going to South Africa, to London, to Dublin, to Rome, to Tokyo. So we have to um, evaluate, like, who gets to go. There's application processes and, you know, again, both from faculty and students. But we're also charged with, like, developing new programs. So the, relatively speaking, that's not that many programs um, to offer our students. Um, right now, we're really trying to develop a program in a Spanish-speaking country. So right now, there is a an, um, one professor is developing a program in Ecuador. 
and um, someone else is trying to work on developing a program in Colombia. So what we do is provide like um, resources. Like we have an office, but as the committee, we evaluate their programs. We look at like like one woman was the, the one who was um, creating the program for Ecuador, for example. You know, we thought, mm-hmm. oh, this sounds great, but we think you should do X, Y, and Z as well to make it a more well-rounded program. Or somebody yeah. wanted to develop a program in Colombia and. Um, you know, it was like, oh, this sounds great, but what about X, Y, and Z? Like, go back to the drawing board and figure out these three things, and then let's look at it again. Um, mm-hmm. So looking at where there are, def- not deficiencies, but holes in terms of the programs that are submitted. Also, like, where do we think our students should be going? What kind of programs um, we really want to, I want to develop a program um, in West Africa, not just in South Africa. Um, mm-hmm. So um, also, like, one of the things that we that keeps coming up are like language requirements. Like for example, mm-hmm. like we want to have a program in a Spanish speaking country, but um, many of our students don't take foreign language and are not required to. They can take a global, like a general global studies course to satisfy the same like requirement. You can either take a language or you can take one of these kind of global studies classes. I actually mm-hmm. tried to create a program in Spain um, like five years ago and I got the p- program um, planned and approved by our committee, but could not get 10 students to sign up because there was a language requirement. Oh, and there no. weren't enough students who could, literally had only taken one year of Spanish to to go. So hmm. it's really trying to figure out um, those things. And the other things that we're also always trying to figure out how to get more students who don't often apply for study abroad to study yeah. abroad. Um, mm-hmm. How do we? There's like the the um, marketing of our programs to different student groups is always a challenge. One because professors are busy, like and to you know our the actual office is just made up of two actual paid staffers. So like the committee, we're tasked with a lot of these things, and so mm-hmm. um, and we all obviously have other multiple other hats to wear. Um, but that is one of the things that we're constantly trying to, because so we're evaluating, like, is it cost that's keeping people from applying? Is it fear yeah. that's, like, making people not apply? Is it a belief that, you know, they don't see other people of color, for example, or other people who look like them for whatever reason that might be? Um, so, like, one of the things we started doing is having, like, student ambassadors who yeah. who went on the trip and then we asked them to like serve as officer ambassadors in our offices so that they can kind of show other kids that it's fine but we also um, always have, we have like a scholarship that we give to a student who will be a student blogger for example so while they're on the trip we give them a camera and we tell them they have to you know post X amount of videos and things and stories while they're gone and that also is helpful because, you know, students mm-hmm. see someone who looks like them maybe. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a person of color or anything. It can be anybody. But it just shows the students um, what it's really like, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And it doesn't have to seem yeah. such a faraway foreign thing. Yeah. Wow. So it seems like y'all are doing a lot. And I think it's good that y'all are considering that aspect of students who don't usually apply, what the reasons for that are and how to how to counter, counter that. So more students who you know, might not see it as an option at first, might actually come around and give that type of experience a try. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I guess based on your own experiences, 
having studied abroad, but also like the um, the role you have now as part of a study abroad committee. Do you have any advice for someone who's looking to, uh, you know, do an international learning experience, or for someone who's just looking to travel more? Do you have any advice that you'd like to share? I mean, I think that for me personally, even when I was, you know, back in the day, it was always really important for me to see, like, how other people did it. And mm-hmm. back in the day, it was like going and not conferences, but like going to these meetings with my mom and listening to other people. And I remember originally being like, oh, I'm not going to AFS. Like, I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, my mom would drag me to these meetings because like I had to go. I wasn't allowed to stay home by myself or whatever. <laughs> and I just remember yeah. meeting such great people. And I love the kids and I love the energy. And I was like, I want to be a part of this. This is amazing. Now with social media, you can do that without leaving your desk chair, right? You can go online and read these blogs and um, see these videos of people who are doing this. And I think that that's like literally the first step is to inform yourself. There's no reason why you can't go online and see, you know, read Travel Noir or listen to your podcast, um, you know, and, (laughs) and, and hear the very real experiences of people. And there's people, you know, there are black students traveling abroad. There are black adults traveling abroad. There are Mm -hmm. Asian students traveling abroad, documenting their experiences. And literally it's a Google search and you can see that it's possible and see not only that it's possible, that it's pleasurable. Um, or maybe you'll see that like you shouldn't go to country X because, you know, 10 of the 12 things that you read about that people have bad experiences great cross that Mm -hmm. off your list um but i think that it really does begin with seeing what is possible and seeing that people who look like you or who had your same financial situation that they did it and oftentimes not only do they document that they went there but sometimes they also document how they got there there's this scholarship, yeah. there's this, you know, something that we, at Temple, we do have these very special scholarships specifically for travel abroad. And we that's one of our educational um, points is that we often have to be telling kids, don't take yourself out of the running because you think it's too expensive because there's a lot of, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not like, I don't want to overstate it, but we do have like scholarships for students to study abroad. Like it's earmarked for that mm-hmm. for that purpose. So my my advice is to like literally educate yourself and ins- get yourself inspired by looking at people mm-hmm. who've done it before you. You are not the first person by any stretch of the imagination. Even if you want to think of yourself <laughs> as that special black unicorn, that is not you. There is somebody else who looks like you who's in an even more bizarre situation. You know, that one girl who went you know, and lived in Mongolia like, and, you know, worked on a horse farm in Mongolia or something. Like, she might be the only and first but like and so she's already taken that first step anyway so Mm -hmm. educate yourself as much as you can use the resources of the internet to find both people who look like you who have your same background and um and even like reach out to them because you can do that also reach out to them how did you do it what program did you go on do you have any advice or suggestions um because at this point in time there's like no excuse not to Uh, like find out how you can do any kind of travel um, because somebody else has already done it and figured out how to do it for you and you just have to follow the steps yeah yeah that's good I just have two other very brief Mm -hmm. questions for you do you have anywhere I know you said you're going to Spain again for the first time in seven years do you have anywhere else that you would like to go 
it could be anywhere either internationally or domestically someplace you'd really like to well visit. my favorite place which makes my husband always look at me funny is like my only because it's so close but i love um lisbon portugal so much and um mm. i'm going to try to go while i'm in spain um it's my happy place um i would also like my big trip that i want to take is i really want to go to ghana i want to go to west africa i mm. really want to go to ghana um I used to really want to go to Senegal, but I did a DNA test and supposedly my ancestors are in Ghana. I don't know if that's really true because those DNA tests aren't as accurate as people say they are. But regardless, um, yeah, I really want to go to Ghana. So that is my next kind of like global trip. Um, I tried to sneak myself on a trip, (laughs) somebody else's trip. I was like, don't you need another chaperone? And, um, (laughs) but their trip got canceled for that year, for last year. I was so mad because I was like, Mm -hmm. oh God, this is good. And I was talking to this one guy. He was, you know, he's a fellow parent at my kid's karate school. And he coincidentally Mm -hmm. was from Ghana. Like, and it was his, his, he had the same name as one of my kids, which was how we struck up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And my kids' names are very unique, so it was funny. And then he was like, oh, because my, my second son's name is Adai, which is a very popular last name in Ghana. It's a very common last name. Mm-hmm. Um, so we struck up a conversation. Oh, he's from Ghana. And then he was telling me, oh, you have to go. And like these are all things. And I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. And so I was really ready and thinking I had you know figured out how I could do this in the most, like, backdoor way you know um and their trip got canceled i was like man dang yeah yeah well i mean i i hope i'm sure you will find a way to get there you know um and i'm sure that will have no no i'm sorry like i had another backdoor plan also that also got canceled and i'm so very annoyed (laughs) um (laughs) but actually i also remember that um a very good friend of mine is moving back to kenya so the likelihood of me getting to Kenya before getting to Ghana is actually stronger because um, yeah. again it's a trip that's like we're going to visit friends right so um, mm-hmm. even though it'd be a longer trip it would it's probably going to happen sooner rather than the Ghana yeah. trip I don't know you know what just keep checking in I'll post it on my blog whenever <laughs> I end up okay okay and then my last question, you mentioned, you know, the books that you've written and My American Melting Pot. Um, I was just wondering if you could um, mention what handles people can f- uh, follow or where specifically they can look to keep up with you and the work that Absolutely. you're doing. So, um, like I said, the my blog is kind of where I am always. It's myamericanmeltingpot.com. And mm-hmm. um, I am also on Instagram at myamericanmeltingpot. And I'm on Twitter at Lori Tharps. So those are my, that's where you'll find me. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to talk with me today and sharing about all the, or some of the many experiences that you've had. This has been really great. And I hope you've enjoyed our conversation as well. I have enjoyed it very much. Like I could, I'm looking at the time (laughs) and I can't believe we've been talking this long, but I can't because (laughs) I could talk about traveling forever. Yeah. <laughs> this is this has been a great oh. joy. So thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I'm it's my pleasure and likewise. Thank you very much for being my guest. This has been wonderful. Um so I'll let you go enjoy the rest of your day. Once again, this has been so much fun and um I'll let you know when it's out and everything and I will keep um following my American Pot cuz I feel like you're doing some really interesting work. Thank over you so too. much. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, no problem. So I'll talk to you some other time, okay? 
All right. Bye, bye Lori. Thank you. <laughs>